Okay, we're back for another episode of the podcast, and this one, uh, well, this one is a special edition episode, bit of a change of pace here. Uh, we're not joined by a famous sports star, an expert coach or anything of that nature, but instead my younger brother, Jake O'Donnell. And even though I'm still a bit filthy at him for some of his backyard cricket antics uh, over our younger years, he is still, uh, in my book anyway, just as much of a dead set fucking legend. Uh, and, and speaking of book, he's written one. So we're going to dive into that a bit today and I encourage you guys to stick around for a laugh, something a bit more lighthearted. I think we're going to have a bit of fun. So, mate, Jake, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. I uh, appreciate you listing off the many things that I haven't achieved or <laughs> the things that I'm not in this world. I'm also not a, a model, uh, a quantum physicist. There's a few other things you can probably label off as well. But uh, yeah, no, good to be here. Well, it's good to have you, mate. I think we're going to have a laugh. I was just talking off air about making sure we clean it up a little bit. I think our chats, particularly after a few pints, are usually a little bit, you know, <laughs> risque. So we'll keep it clean for the most part. But at the same time, we'll... Um, I want to pick your brain on a few of your few of your tales from your time. <laughs> it sounds a, a little dangerous, but uh, let's go with it. Let's see how we go. We'll just get the PR PR team involved. We'll filter <laughs> it through them, and they can they can uh, retract anything that isn't for show. I'll have uh, the lawyer look through all the dialogue that we go through, and just make sure it's all above board. Mates, uh, I usually thank the guests for carving out some time from their hectic schedule to connect with me um, on the show. But I have a feeling your schedule's a little bit more open. Just before we dive into it, mate, how's the last week for you looked? Uh, yeah, it's been okay. Obviously, um, in the middle of a pandemic at the moment, um, so things are pretty slow. Um, I work at a school, so I'm still doing um, some work there, but I'm only on site uh, one day at the moment, which is nice. <laughs> You'd be loving that. I'm uh, Yeah, I'm hoping there's a few more pandemics in the future, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Might uh, go and round up a few pangolins or some bats or something and see what, um, see what I can get going. <laughs> It suits you nicely. I suppose it creates more time to write, which, you know, we'll talk about in a minute. But, mate, there's heaps of I think we could we could probably unpack. But the book, obviously, it's not out yet. You're still finalising it a little bit. And we can't give, you know, too much away. But what's it called? What's it all about? Who's it for? And, and how did it all come about, this book of yours that you're working on? Uh, so it's called Walk Like a Maniac, the story of everyone who became a man in the 21st century. And basically, it just takes a look at the... Embarrassing, underwhelming, ridiculous journeys that all boys have had to take in the modern world to becoming a man. It's got a, a memoir nature to it as well, where I, I recount the stories. Of, oh, so I should probably elaborate on that a little more. Is that uh, it follows the sequential order of first moments that most boys would have experienced in their life. Uh, so the time where groundbreaking first or as common as a kick in a Frankston brawl. <laughs> We're just going to have a look back over a period of time where first time still mattered. So from first girlfriends through to first fights, uh, first jobs, uh, first fallen soldiers and whatnot. And I recount my uh, embarrassing, underwhelming, ridiculous uh, stories that happened for me in all of those experiences. So I imagine you touched on it there, but being embarrassed, underwhelming, things of that nature... Do you feel like you're the, the poster boy to really champion those stories uh, for all the other men out there? Absolutely. I think I probably encapsulate everything it means to be a 21st century <laughs> man, to be honest. My life been, could it very easily be described as just a, a constant adjustment to embarrassment. I think so too. But mate, there's some good, there's some good stuff in there. Um, like I said, we'll, we'll kind of unpack a bit of it today. Uh, but for you, mate, when did you first start thinking... I might actually be able to document these tales. And, and what was the reasoning before that? Did you want to 
you know, do you want to make people laugh? Did you just want to sort of highlight how ridiculous some of your life situations had been? Like, what was the, I suppose, the motivating force before uh, behind putting these ideas and these stories on paper? Yeah, um, the main, to be honest, the main driving force for everything that I've done in my life has been making people laugh and being funny, to be honest. Uh, I don't want to probably delve into that too much into my psychology behind that. Cause it's no, probably... let's, stay on, let's stay on that way. Let's psychoanalyze your family. But... <laughs> Actually, that's my family too. <laughs> let's stay away from that. Yeah, let's, let's keep those skeletons in the closet. Uh, it could, be, could become a, a very different podcast. And people reaching out to you, both of us, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess to, to go back to the beginning of it, when I came back from London, um, obviously, which is a couple of years ago now, I hadn't really done any, I was always good at writing in um, school with a, a limited amount, amount of work that I did complete. But yeah, I came back from London. Um, I just retired from the education industry for the second time in five years. Once again, that uh, retirement didn't take either, so I'm back in it now. <laughs> I came back, obviously unemployed, and I really didn't have a, too much to do apart from sleeping about 15 hours from <laughs> jet lag for the first week. Uh, at the time, you were running a, a travel website, mm-hmm. and you just hit me up and asked if I wanted to write uh, a story from my travels, which I did. Uh, I wrote a story and then sent that through to you, um, as well as a couple of other people as well. And yeah, I just got a lot of really good feedback. And um, being who I am as a person, if you <laughs> give me even just a slither of positivity, it will just make my head swell up and I thought I was the next Ernest Hemingway after about 900 words. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, from there I started uh, writing a few more stories as well and then I went on to become the chief travel writer for the website. Absolutely. Which involved writing all different types of pieces, which was good. And then from there, I guess what I really loved doing was writing uh, funny stories basically and to be honest, there's quite a lot of them in my life, which is has its good good things and I guess some negative things as well. And yeah, and I just I thought about where I wanted to go next with it, with the type of writing that I particularly enjoy doing and the type of writing that I felt that I was good at. And yeah, I just came up with the idea of writing a book about what it means to become a man in the 21st century or what it has meant to become a man in the 21st century. And yeah, and Obviously, doing the writing that I was doing with your website at the time, a lot of it was based around me telling stories about myself. So I really wanted to keep that element in my writing. But I figured that without people knowing me, no one's probably going to want to hear the stories of just some young mid-20s bloke who's just telling stories about his life. I hadn't really achieved anything in particular as you so eloquently illustrated in the uh, introduction to this podcast. (laughs) So then I came up with the idea of making it about uh, just young blokes in general and the comparison between, I guess, what the general life cycle has been for us as a collective and then having that focus on what it's meant for me as well. Well, it's very relatable um, to most most guys, and I think, and we'll talk about this in a moment. But I reckon even some of the ladies will get a good chuckle of this, um, even just to understand the the species that is the male human <laughs> a little bit better, or understand their partner a bit more, what, why they do the things they do, or maybe just get a, an insight into their <laughs> the skeletons in their closet. So, and just on that, um, I did I did try to write in a way. I mean, obviously, it is very much directed at a young male audience for people like ourselves and 
probably acquire a few of your listeners to the podcast as well. But I did, I did, I always wanted to write it in a way that it didn't alienate other readers as well, even though it might not necessarily be about them. The things that are written in there are relatable and understandable, I think, for just a wider audience as well. So, yeah, I agree. So, just on the structure of the book to give people a bit of context as to what to expect, you touched on it a little bit there, but. How do you kind of go from writing stories? Like you said, you're writing for my side at the time. Some really short stories. They're hilarious. And there's no doubt that, you know, you've got tales to tell and it's always good fun listening in, even just as your brother. But how do you then go to from that to actually constructing a book? Could you talk us through the kind of the, the snapshot of the structure of this book? I know you've, you've, you've generally got an intro for each chapter. Then you've, you've got your own personal story. What can people expect on how to read this book? Yeah, so um, in terms of coming up with the structure of the book, uh, it almost just happened immediately to be honest as soon as I decided that I wanted to write a book and decided I wanted to write a book about the the subject matter that I've written it about the structure of it kind of just came to me immediately so as you said there is um, an introduction to each chapter which goes through all the ways in which those first likely unfolded for just whoever's reading the book so um, it takes a very satirical lens pokes fun at us takes the piss out of uh, just the the 21st century man in general. Um, And, yeah, it looks at just how each verse likely unfolded for just the collective modern man uh, and just the funny things associated with that. Have you got a favourite chapter that you've written? I mean, it's difficult to say. It might be... It's the goalpost move for that, I'd say, depending on how recently I've read it. So you touched on it a little bit earlier, but what's what's maybe two or three of those chapters? So it's our first experiences. What are some of the earlier ones that we'd all be able to relate to? Uh, yeah, so the first chapter is uh, our first sexual awakening. So Good place to start. Especially for the collective modern man, one of the most important, one that's defined probably the rest of our life uh, as much as any of the others. Mm-hmm. It's starting there and then um, moves to our first girlfriend, which takes a look at, you know, maybe it was in primary school, maybe it was in uh, secondary school, takes a look, talks about cooties, pandemics in primary school, and then... Um, nasty stuff. Yeah. And then just the ridiculous physics-defining attempts of the three-way kiss that I'm sure uh, <laughs> yourself and many of your listeners probably went through and failed miserably at. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm an, I'm an ace at the three-way <laughs> kiss. <laughs> don't ask the other patrons yeah. involved. <laughs> and then from there, yeah, it goes into our first day of work, has a look at our first post-game shower. So obviously people like myself and yourself who have engaged in team sport into adulthood uh, will realise that uh, you can't exactly hide in the safety and comfort of your own shower forever. There is an expectation that we that we need to get out there and a rite of passage. Yeah, <laughs> so which one of the more horrible ones for me to be honest. <laughs> uh, and from that, then it moves into um, sort of the later years, the more um, recent times for us. So looking at first uh, moves out of home, um, first dead end jobs, first office romances. Um, first fights, and then, yeah, comes together with the, the final chapter being our first fallen soldier. So when we have to part ways with uh, one of our former bachelors who have cashed in and set off for a life of responsibility. Uh, and then, yeah, there's just a, a, some words at the end talking about what the possible future might be for 21st century men. 
Right, see, well, it's, I've read most of it. There's still a couple of chapters to go. I, just, I must, I must clarify. You haven't stitched me up in anywhere uh, along this book, have you? There's no stories about my past or anything that I'd need to be concerned about. No, rearing, rearing their heads in the stories there. Much to your dismay, I'm sure there's nothing about you in the book. So <laughs> I did have to twist your arm to get myself on the podcast, considering there wouldn't be too much that we could talk about you. But no, I haven't, I haven't stitched up you or anyone else in the book, just myself, to be honest, and uh, just. The collective modern man, I guess, as well. So you, you've had a life rich with stories, at the very least, and it does at least improves as, as ammo to then take piss out of yourself, which you know bears fruit into this this book that you've been able to put together. Is there anything that sort of stands out from like a, a moment for you that didn't make the book that's maybe not sort of applicable for the modern man in the coming of age? Like I, I know you spent, this would be good for the listeners, I think, you spent some time on the Goldie, which was good fun, the Gold Coast. You spent a couple of years in London where you met your partner. Uh, is there any memories that kind of stand out for you that you like to reflect back on? <laughs> yeah, there's there's plenty. There's plenty that you probably are aware of as well that uh, just for the well-being of humanity, I won't share on <laughs> mainstream media. That's it. Um, but yeah, there's a couple. One for my travels, I guess, that stands out is, uh, as you know and as you did yourself, I um, did quite a lot of solo traveling around Europe. Yeah, I just like to get off by myself, meet new people, hit out the nightlife, and um, yeah, that's basically the way that I went about it. There was a, a situation where I went to uh, Latvia in Riga, so not one of the main tourist destinations, so it was a bit of a gamble, uh, and I was there in September, so a little bit outside the European summer window. Yeah, and I arrived, and I was crook as a dog. Uh, I tried to go down to the bar at the hostel and try to get some conversation going but uh, as you'll know as a solo traveler at times some hostels are more applicable for that than others and this was one where there was just nothing going on do you want to borrow you oh, yeah <laughs> i must have uh, been able to tell what type of person i was they must have got word that you were coming into town <laughs> and just like, went yeah. to the next hostel the stories must have done the rounds on the european circuit but yeah the first night turned out to be a bit of a fizzer woke up the next day i was even more crook I only had probably another three days there, I think, and it was looking like it was just going to be an absolute fizzer. I was going to, didn't really have anyone to talk to. Um, so I went to another pub that wasn't too far away about 11 o'clock in the morning. I was pretty keen to, I was very lonely, as you can tell by that, and pretty keen to talk <laughs> to people. So I walk in there, and there's a couple of young blokes there, which was a good sign. Obviously, they probably preferred not to have anything to do with me, but I went over there anyway and struck up a conversation. And we just had a few beers with them, and they were saying they were actually on a footy trip. So they played footy for um, a team in London. Oh, they played for a team in London, and they were right. So they were a, an English-based footy team, but they were predominantly Aussie blokes. Um, and yeah, like I said, they were on a footy trip. And I had a few more beers with them, and you know, told a few stories, having a bit of a yarn with them, uh, and bonded with them a little bit. And then they were saying they were moving on to another pub to meet up with the rest of the boys. And uh, asked if I wanted to go along with them, tag along. So I thought, well, I clearly have no one else to talk to. So I'll, um, yeah, I'll come across and meet the rest of the boys. Spent the rest of the day with those boys, obviously drinking from 11am till whatever time we finished up the next morning. Struck up some lifelong friendships in the moment, as you think. And um, I ended up just joining them for the rest of the footy trip. So they booked, they had paintballing booked as a as a team i ended up joining <laughs> joining along with them with paintballing yeah i didn't know <laughs> I had a bunch of other activities set up did you have well. to pay 
I did have to pay, but like they squeezed me in with them. I went to like a dinner that they had, and I just literally spent. I was on a completely different hostel <laughs> with them, but I just spent like the next all all every waking moment that I was with them. I just spent the next three days with them, uh, and I think this was under the proviso that I would play for them. So they were for, playing for the South East London Giants. Right, and it's a soccer team, is it? Uh, no, it's an AFL team. So Aussie rules. Right, oh, sorry, it is AFL, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I signed my soul away to them, basically, full well knowing that I was already living in a house with um, blokes who were Wimbledon Hawks blokes. So I'd already pretty much signed on the dotted line for uh, another club. Mate, all the best deals are done over a few points. Absolutely. So even though it was only for a can of Coke and a, a pie, I did eventually have to just renege on that deal and stay with the Wimbledon Hawks. But yeah, that was one of the, of the stories that stands out from uh, my travels abroad. Uh, one of the ones that I can share, at least anyway. And there is, there's a few more. that are, There's one in the book as well, um, which I won't go into too much detail about. But as you well know, I do enjoy the limelight, particularly after a few beers. Um, over I mean, beer. I, have, I have seen you in your element a few times, and um, it must run in the family. But um, you certainly... Yeah, you don't, you don't hate attention when you've had a few. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, hard to miss me after a couple of beers, to be honest. I don't want to say that you're disgusting. I think that's a bit strong, but you certainly, uh, there's not a lot off the table when, you've, um, when you're under the influence. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a fair way of putting it, to be honest. But yeah, so over a period of about 10 years, and just being someone who's always looking for desperate cries for attention i'd perfected a move the worm which i'd bring out at the end of a night usually to just really capture the onlooker's imagination and i perfected it over a period of about 10 years but i've been yet to enact it on the european circuit i thought you know what you know i'm in a different country different continent completely different time zone why don't i just try and be just a, a normal person uh try and use my just constructive dialogue to win people over but clearly that was never going to work for me so on a fateful night in madrid on a pub crawl i think it was a, a monday night actually or it might have been a sunday i thought a perfect time to bust out the worm so i've hurtled towards the floor one worm two worm three worm four five worm six worm seven worm more but i've noticed that on one of the worms i've collided my chin with the floor full impact and obviously doing this when i'm usually blind drunk i've come across quite a few injuries in the past but this one i knew immediately was uh different to many of the others uh put my hand up to my chin immediately afterwards and then i pulled it down and where i'd been expecting to see the crowd in the palm of my hand there was only a pool of blood so <laughs> i got rushed away to uh, the hospital <laughs> and when I was in the hospital actually there was um, only two other people obviously it's m Sunday or Monday night in Madrid not a lot going on but there was two other people in there there was a bloke and um, a girl that I presume looked like it was his girlfriend us being the only souls in there I kind of shot him an acquisitive thumbs up to check to see what his prognosis might be and he just uh they both of them actually just shook their head and looked pretty solemn. So I have no idea exactly what he was going through, but I can only assume he was another 21st century man who flew too close to the sun and got burnt. Like he could I very well be a victim of a, of a dance move as well. Absolutely. So five stitches later anyway, and um, 
I was good, ready to get back out there. And you have whammed again, have you? I have, yeah. Five days later, I tried to do it again in uh, Portugal on a 45-degree cobblestone road that probably would have sliced and diced Michael Jackson to pieces, to be honest. It wouldn't matter how silky you were. Um, and the stitches were split, and I had an infection for the following week. I had to take antibiotics. So all those beautiful oceans in Lagos, I wasn't able to swim in, unfortunately. Was it worth it, though? Absolutely, and you can mark my words that I will worm again going forward. That is fantastic. Well, I always, you know, I didn't say this at the start, but I'd try and find a way to weasel some sort of philosophy and motivational conversation into into this dialogue. So there we go. Absolutely, go yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Doesn't matter how many stitches you need in your lower face. Always pursue whatever desperate cry for attention you need. And who, and who is someone to tell you what your goal should or shouldn't be? So to, absolutely. To, Continue your worm journey. I think, mate, I'm grinning from ear to ears. A tear from my eye. I'm sure the audience is, is uh, moved right now. Yeah, so if there's any uh, listeners out there looking for motivational speakers, um, just, yeah, get in contact with me and I'm sure we can work something out. Well, just on persistence then, you end up spending, spending a bit of time in London, of course, and there's probably a million tales. We could probably just riff for fucking hours, man, you. But you end up meeting your now girlfriend there. Uh, I did, yes. On the, on the subway, if I'm not mistaken. How did that come about? From memory, I think uh, you're, you're putting on some of your best moves, which, you know, <laughs> hit and miss at the best of times. So how did that come about? How did... <laughs> I, think you, your pool I think you sneaking the word hit in there is an attempt to make up for the slagging off you did at the start of the interview because I think that's a pretty generous pretty generous term for me. But, yeah, it was a Friday, Friday afternoon in London at the end of a, a big week. I was pretty knackered. And I thought, you know what, this might be a weekend where I just – Keep it quiet, at least on the, the Friday night. I had There was a bloke from the footy club. It was his 30th. It wasn't someone that I was particularly close with, though. So I wasn't too keen on going. I thought, you know what, after work, I'll just try and get away quickly and have a nice restful night. But as it is, the rubber arm gets twisted and I go, oh, I'll come down to the pub for a few beers with my colleagues after work. And obviously, after about 75 mils of that beer, the world's my oyster. <laughs> so I was there for a couple of hours and then, you know, a few beers in. Yeah, you know what? I will go along to that 30th. Um, so I hopped on the tube, but obviously after a couple of hours of drinking and just with my general intelligence as it is, there's always going to be a bit of a hassle working out where to, which station I needed to go to. Particularly, I was on a line that I hadn't been on before. So I, I used to catch the Hammersmith and City line to work every day, but there's a circle line that's a part of that that I've never been on before. So I was immediately bamboozled by it. <laughs> no real idea of um, where I was going. And I, to be honest, I usually enjoyed just chatting to people when I was a bit pissed on the tube anyway. So this was an occasion where I genuinely needed... This was a case when I genuinely needed to in order to uh, get to get where I needed to go. So I had a little bit of a scan around the, the tube in London and the tube in London itself being what it is. There's not too many options for inviting company. Uh, but I did spot one attractive young girl um, that was in my carriage. So I went over there and I thought I'd uh, have a chat to her and see if maybe she could uh, work me out and help me. Uh, the first comment she made was about my eyes, which apparently were terribly bloodshot. And me being me and in the state that I was, I thought I'd go on a bit of a riff about how I had a severe eye condition and that I was deeply offended. Um, 
somehow she was actually interested in this and continued to chat to me. Um, Got the sympathy vote. Absolutely. It's worked wonders for me over, well, uh, wonders is again probably a little bit generous, but it's, <laughs> worked, it's been one of the few things that have worked for me over my single years. But yeah, I got stuck chatting to her um, and I was telling her about this party that I was going to and I was trying to convince her to come along to it, hoping that her arm might have been as rubbery as mine. It turned out actually as well that she'd just been stood up on a date. So obviously, in, in comes Jakey boy. <laughs> sense a bit of weakness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it must have been just the dejected look on her face that I thought, yep, this has me written all over it. <laughs> so I was inviting her along to this party, and I think I reckon. I got pretty close to getting her along, but um, there was another older American lady that was sitting pretty close to where we were, and she just leant across and said something along the lines of, uh, I don't think this guy's safe. I think if you value your well-being, you should <laughs> head straight home. So that uh, put a, a bit of a dampener on my ambitions to get her along to the party, but I did manage to get her number. And yeah, from there... I only need to get my foot in the door and being the charming and charismatic man that you, yourself would know and your listeners, I'm sure, can tell from this interview. 1,000%. Um, she never stood a chance from there. So Another another tale of persistence paying off. I like it. Yes, and um, she's stuck around, which is good. So thousands of dollars later working on a, a visa. So I must have done something right. You must have. Well, right, I got, let's change pace a little bit while well, I've got you. Um, I figure we may as well have this conversation on air for a laugh and just get to the bottom of a, a truly um, mysterious riddle we never got to the bottom of previously, which is the backyard cricket Brownlow medal. I, I had a feeling. <laughs> I was actually hoping this is where you're going. Yes. I I, I think it's I not as much you, mystery. I have nightmares over this shit. Well, I don't think there's as much mystery surrounding as what perhaps you do. There's, there's a particular mystery surrounding that. that we never got the final vote count, but I don't think there's any mystery around who, who won the Brownlow medal, as far as I'm concerned, at least, anyway. Well, that, let's digress, because I, uh, I also feel equally confident. Um, so, <laughs> I, Unless we're on the same page, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. And as to the mystery of where the votes went, I think we should, I don't know if it's too late to launch an investigation. I don't know if, if, the, if the records disappear after seven years or however it works. But Well, considering is, you had a... <laughs> A hand in the votes disappearing, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure you'd be the best person I'm to... confident that you were the last to be seen with it. And unless Lester, the old man, is solely to blame, which I just can't see it in his nature to stitch it up, unless he didn't well, want his two boys you, fighting over it. You were always his favourite, so I wouldn't be surprised whether he's just... In order to protect your so. mental well-being, he's gone out of his way to disrupt the natural proceedings that should have unfolded. But... Um, should we so set, provide a little bit of context? Let's, let's give a little bit. Let's give some sort of context so that the rest of the listeners outside the you know the two or two or three friends that we have that would know what the fuck we're talking about. Uh, we are um, I haven't told anybody this because I'm just deeply ashamed about how we spent our lives as twenty young twenty year old men. It's funny. I was actually chatting to someone today about like it just came up in in conversation about childhood and. Almost all I could think about was like was playing sports growing up, backyard cricket, backyard yeah. footy, tennis, and like outside of that, and like eating bags of fucking chocolate chip biscuits. I, I I can't. I don't know if it's just something more traumatic took place and I blocked it out of my memory. But I don't know. Like, can you remember much more to our, from like age seven to sixteen from like other than backyard sports? The tennis balls. 
cricket bats and tennis rackets and LCMs and potato chips. And that's about it. That's our, if it was a staple in our childhood. If four things could sum up our childhood. I think that staples of a good childhood. Absolutely. I mean, there's, some, there's some other stuff as well. That's probably the parts we've blocked out, but the the good stuff, they're staples. Yeah, absolutely. So we combated our likely projection towards diabetes with the amount of junk food that we ate with um, vigorous physical activity every night. So very much so. So one season in particular, we end up we have um, so again just for a little bit of context, me versus you. Yellow versus blue Toowoomba. That's a story in of itself, but just <laughs> representing the the country, the famous country town of Toowoomba, Queensland. They haven't done a whole lot, I don't think, other than I don't know what they do. <laughs> How'd that come about? I think uh, we might have been given um, caps when we were youngsters from oh, our yeah, grandparents. Yeah, of course. Then... We got those shitty little hats with like the flaps on them, like you're embarrassed to wear. Them I don't know whether I'd use the word shitty to describe the baggy blue as it is at Toowoomba. <laughs> So yellow versus blue Toowoomba, I'm yellow, you're blue. One day is in tests consisting of, at the time, what seemed like very real characters, but just to provide the right context, they were, boy, boy, in, all, in all essence, made up people <laughs> so people can follow along. They, they weren't multiple people just walking their way through our uh, house. To the <laughs> I think the lines blurred on that a little bit. I, I distinctly remember there being several of those people in my life, so... <laughs> Well, I've actually spoke to a few psychologists on the show, so I might connect to you guys after after we get yeah. off. <laughs> it may have just <laughs> been the throes of um, early onset schizophrenia. Who knows? But could be. Oh well. But uh, we end up we compete year in year out. I don't. We would have paid, in all seriousness, what maybe two hundred games or matches of backyard cricket every season, sort of from what like October to March. I reckon that might even be putting it mild, to be honest. Yeah, we're playing two, three, or four a night, pretty much every night, unless you crack the shits and left, which I mean, admittedly, I do occasionally <laughs> as well. Uh, maybe <laughs> your, for your the... attitude improved over the years, though. <laughs> it's uh, amazing what winning will do for attitude. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. I, I actually just I can't remember the exact moment, but I remember the the season in which I would I transitioned from. You know, my team of five players, so do what Dougal McDougal, Damien Drake, Sean Twain, Fishy Fishcake, and Moby, was it? And then a few others that were in rotation, but that was sort of the main five. There was, yeah, there was always some fringe players, but that was your, your general squad, I'd say. I remember a couple of them I would take the pace off a little bit, just sort of put the brakes on to let you in, to, to make the game more competitive. And then <laughs> all of a sudden I was like, fuck, okay, i gotta, I got to actually... I gotta increase this a little bit, and then the next thing I know, I'm going all out and losing games. So <laughs> that was an interesting year for me. That wasn't the Brownlow year, which we'll get to in a sec, but that was uh, that was a bit of a hit to my ego, I must say. The Brownlow year came afterwards when that was just a regular occurrence of me winning and you really clutching at straws. So who was who was championing your team? You had so the, the captain was Arnold Arnold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> An insight into my creativity from a, a young age. Absolutely. Uh, I was unable to come up with uh, a second sound for for someone's name, for someone's surname. Nor your lead bowler either. So I had Arnold, yeah, that's correct. I had Arnold Arnold, Michael Michaels, David Jones. So must have just been. Oh, a, David Jones, that's right. Must have been a young fashionista when I was a child, <laughs> just David Jones. But they were the main three originally, and then. Main three, yeah. That was the equivalent to my Drake, Damien Drake, uh, Dougal McDougal, and Sean Twain. Yep. And then I had 
Michael Cutter, another Michael. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Once again, <laughs> straws with the, the names, but Michael Cutterack and then uh, Ricky Diamond as well. Oh, Ricky Diamond, he was a bad boy, wasn't he? Uh, when he first came on the scene, but then he really leveled up and just became one of the real, he was one of the real driving forces behind Blue Toowoomba's turnaround. <laughs> <laughs> so one year we ultimately decided to keep score, to keep, to get a bit of an indication as to who the best players are. And admittedly, we'll, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're pretty fair with the points that we would give, the Brownlow points. Um, and yes, we, we, it's, for the people listening, we are crossing codes. We, we're fully aware that the Brownlow is an AFL award and we're talking about cricket. <laughs> I think there's a, um, a really important caveat that we should let the listeners know here as well. This isn't something, the Brownlow year isn't something that took place when we were 13 or 14 years old. No. I think I was maybe like 19 or 20 and you must have mm. been 21 was, or 22. <laughs> I had a full-time job. I was, <laughs> was caught on, on sick to continue this. <laughs> it's not one, it's not, it's one thing in itself that as, you know, 20-year-old men that were coming home and vigorously playing competitive, highly competitive backyard cricket against one another. We're also doing it as imaginary characters. And on top of that, we're voting for which imaginary characters played the best. Isn't it odd though? I don't know about you, but it, for some reason, it has to be some sort of psychosomatic impact. The better, the quote unquote better players performed the best. And almost always, I was, trying with my fringe players they just weren't good yeah i think there was a little bit subconsciously maybe where i put the yeah i was trying to protect my better players who were in the mix for the brown line. i feel like when damien drake came to the crease or opened the bowling i just was transcended to another universe i feel like that to an extent was another <laughs> another person it was a deeply psychedelic experience wasn't it so let's just let's get to it so damien drake for me i feel like was the real hero of that season open the bowling Often would make 30s, of course, retire at 30 as was as was custom to then continue the journey and retiring every 30 or so. I think he even clocked up a few few 60 pluses. So for me, he was a real he was a real star of the show. And if it was televised, I feel like he would have had an enormous amount of endorsement deals. But I feel like you might disagree with that. For me, he was a real clear winner. And we can only assume having, which we'll get to in a sec. Uh, with the with the votes never being counted, I can only assume he was the <laughs> the rightful winner. Well, I mean, I think you you might be making a fair assessment if you were referring to Yellow Swimmer's Club Best and Fairest Award. He probably was the outstanding performer from Yellow Columba that year. But um, like I mentioned earlier, this was in the era in which the ascendancy really turned, and I managed to become the dominant force. Or sorry. Blue Toowoomba managed to become the... <laughs> I don't want to take all the credit as the coach of the team. It's the players who deserve the credit. And the, and the body, bodily form of the players. <laughs> exactly. Whoever, uh, whoever's physical form they happen to be channeling themselves through is irrelevant. It's the, the entities themselves that deserve the credit. But Michael Michaels had really been... He was probably the third. When we uh, used to play with just the three... Uh, players, which we would call one day, as he was kind of the third stringer. But with uh, my physical development, he really developed as well. So he became the powerhouse of uh, O'Donnell backyard cricket. He was a, an all round. I will give you that, dude. He, his his bowling into his not yours, his <laughs> <laughs> fucking one hand off the ground catches a millimeter off the ground. I just remember that. That's fucking traumatic. That's triggered like. <laughs> 
<laughs> I blocked that out. Like, that was ridiculous. I was playing the best fucking ground strokes, cover drives, on drives. And <laughs> how did you even do I that? I you mention that because I think quite clearly we'd agree that I was the better, particularly off a one-hand, one-bounce rocket, yeah. fielder out of the two of us. Agreed. But I, if it wasn't within my immediate radius, <laughs> I wasn't going to get it. I wasn't someone that was going to dive for it. But I was... You couldn't get it past me. If it came within sort of a, a one and a half, two metre radius of me, no matter how fast it was coming off the bounce, it was likely to stick in the mint. But I have distinct memories of you bowling and I would just do like a, a small block shot just trying to, you know, maybe slow things down a little bit. And you, as a six foot four man in bare feet, charging down the sloped concrete and diving to get the ball. So I think that should, if anything, for the listeners, paint a picture of just how desperate you were to win and how desperate I was to win. And maybe that can uh, provide a little bit of clarity around which team was more successful and who, which team likely had the winning, the winner of the brown loan. But Michael Michaels was, I think he scored 100 that year. He did. Several 30s, wickets galore. I think, I think it's the mystery, there is mystery shrouding what happened to the votes themselves. But like I said, I don't think there's much of a mystery surrounding who the inaugural winner was. Well, I mean, we're going to have to, I think that was, that was almost, if I remember correctly, that was essentially the demise of backyard cricket. We sort of, it was sort of the lining in the sand where we've gone, we're grown men playing. <laughs> Playing grown up, uh, playing maple leaf sports. <laughs> I have a, like a girlfriend, a job to go to. <laughs> to be honest, I think the only thing that stopped it for me was being separated from you. To be honest, I think. To be honest, the fact that um, yeah, that I moved into Stain was you know three and a three hour flight away from you was the only thing stopping me from playing backyard cricket every night still. But what do we? What what happened? We don't know, do we? Lester, our man, was involved. And I don't think I don't think a full inquiry's been launched. <laughs> so maybe we should just provide uh, a few details around how we stored the vote. So we'd write on a piece of paper three, two, one, the best um, imaginary or schizophrenic characters <laughs> performed in the judged in the fairly. Game. Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah. Like it was. I think that the how fairly it was judged is probably accredited just how seriously we took backyard <laughs> sports <laughs> even into our adulthood. Absolutely. I I hated Michael Michaels, but if he, if <laughs> he's, he he's a true gentleman of the sport, though. I, I can't imagine if he, if he if he took four and and made thirty, he was getting the votes. Yeah. Which, and um, and likewise, he did have a prolific year. Remember, Dougal McDougal got my captain, and and the the real real blood life of our, of Yellow Toowoomba. He was pined for a few for a few games. He just got cut and couldn't find his way back into the team. He was the backbone of the team for a long time. We had to add some flair back into the side. <laughs> I forgot that you dropped the captain of your team. <laughs> I think it was. Well, about the time that you, like you said, your dominance was starting to come through a little bit, I thought, yeah, fuck, just... I need to switch things up a little bit. This, yeah, this yeah. old captain is just, I need new blood in here. You have to swing the magnets a little bit and try and get a response from the players. But yeah, we used to write the um, the votes down on a piece of paper, and I believe we <laughs> stored it in a shoebox that we were not to touch. <laughs> Probably mis- mistake number one. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think Dad was in charge of maybe. 
saying that all things were above board and that nothing happened to the shoebox, but dad being dad, obviously, um, memory, <laughs> maybe just <laughs> cognitive capacity is probably not his strong suit. And yeah, managed to misplace or perhaps in cahoots with you, um, destroy the votes. But I mean, I can only vouch for myself. I don't know what you got up to in your time away and, from and, the- and, and I, you. And it's nice. It's nice to laugh about it. But again, I think that having heard a little bit of this story now, some of the listeners might start to realise. Yeah, and you may feel the same. I. It's funny, but I. I I'd be lying if I said I'm. I'm not sure about it. <laughs> I reckon this. Something involved where maybe there was an accidental sweeping into the bin when cleaning our room or something to that extent. But I mean, I can't imagine you admitting to it on national, well, on national air for, for the four listeners that tune into the show. <laughs> when people listen to it, when we reflect on the archives in seven years, when I've got more than 100 listeners, then maybe things get interesting and an inquiry could be launched. I, I, I certainly hope so. So for any future listeners, please look into it. Because, um, yeah, I'd love to get to the bottom of it. Fuck, that was a lot of fun. Um, all right, let's go back to your storytelling a little bit. Um, obviously, a large part of what, how the book came about. And I can't wait to get back on the show to, to promote the book, which is, of course, a little bit away in the process of completing it, final touches, going through the publishers, all that sort of stuff, which will be an exciting process once it's all done. So we'll see how that uh, see how that plays out. But you do spend a bit of time on the Gold Coast. You touched on there when, you, when backyard cricket was unfortunately split up. <laughs> me, me and uh, our sister Tess essentially out travelling the globe, ticking off country after country. You not not uh, sort of venturing too <laughs> too much further from Bandura in your first 19, 18 years of your life. And all of a sudden you just <laughs> fuck off one day and just <laughs> never to return for five years. Yeah. So life on the Gold, I imagine that was pretty fast-paced. Yeah, so I was obviously a real heart and soul stalwart of the Bandura area. Um, like you mentioned, not travelling overseas or really outside of Victoria um, much at all prior to being 21. I went on a few footy trips, obviously, but outside of that, um, I hadn't done any, I hadn't had any extended period away from a home in Bandura. So to set the scene, this is back, uh, I'd recently turned 21. Um, I'd just become a single man. I had a new lease on life. Spending my summer, out, when I wasn't at home playing backyard cricket with you, I was with mates playing backyard cricket with them. My life was just consumed by it, to be honest. And no surprise that one of my players won the brown loan, given how regularly I was playing. But yeah, we used to just get um, a couple of slabs of UDLs between four of us and just play, you know... Hours of backyard cricket while drinking in the sun. And then um, it was 21st season for us that year. So we'd have 21st most uh, most weekends, uh, particularly over the summer. So anyway, it's one Saturday afternoon. We're playing backyard cricket. And one of the boys was saying how he'd heard about um, just like a local footy opportunity on the Gold Coast where they'd get players up from local footy clubs from around Australia, um, fly them up to the Gold Coast, ride them with a place to stay free of rent and yeah, set them up with jobs if they could and get them into the footy side. So he was going on about that and the more and of course more... Your, ex- your extensive res- football resume was just too... They couldn't say no to it. Well, I, yeah, I was thinking the fact <laughs> that I was averaging 50 with the bat on a dusty deck that would make Virat Kohli shaking his boots might have had something to do as well. But uh, my confidence was sky high and I thought, you know what? Despite not being, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, the most talented... And gifted footballer, I thought, you know what, I can, I can do this. You know, you know, I was captain of my junior team, 
St. Damien's to very little success, but very little team <laughs> success at least. But, you know, I thought, you know, I'm not the worst player. I'm handy enough, so I thought, you know, I might actually have a crack at this as well. But obviously, 12 UDL cans later, and then some when we get to the 21st as well. I'm just telling everybody that, you know, I'm moving to the Gold Coast. It's a done deal. I'm moving there for this amazing footballing opportunity. It's going to change my life. And then I wake up the next day uh, trying to fumble my way through the uh, cloudy thoughts of the hangover, and I've just realised, oh, shit, I've actually just told everyone that, you know, I'm packing up my life in Victoria. I've got I've, I've got a huge opportunity. I'm, I've got my big break. Um, effectively, I've outgrown them. And I was in a bit of a pickle, and I thought, you know, obviously I could have just uh, rescinded all the things that I was saying that night and just blamed on the alcohol, but for me, it somehow just seemed easier to cease the university degree I was halfway through completing, uh, quit my job and just leave all of my family and friends and pack my life up to move to a place where I didn't really know anyone and uh, the opportunity might not have even been <laughs> much of a, um opportunity after all. So, How'd you find your time there? So I, I know uh, obviously some stories we probably won't share on, uh, on this chat, <laughs> off air maybe, but from from memory, like you, you kind of alluded to, you you go up there, you're a single man, you know. I'm sure you <laughs> made your way through a, a few ladies up there. Uh, <laughs> I'm not probably the fifth on that. But one of uh, from memory, anyway. Correct me if I'm wrong. I can't remember if this is my story or your story. So I'm pretty sure it happened to you. <laughs> this, is, this is very much a, a Brownlow esque situation again. <laughs> Well, one of us got punched in the face on a date for minding our own business, at the, uh, pretty much at the hand of a woman in the car with us, right? I assume that was you, because I don't recall the intricacies of it all. So basically, there was a, a night spot that we used to frequent called the Cool and Gutter Hotel. We loved it. We were there at least every Friday, sometimes Saturday nights as well, um, just being a pain to the staff, basically, and running a bit of a muck, having a good time, as you do as young lads. Um, and there was a, a woman that worked there behind the bar that, you know, obviously... A bartender, when you're a bit drunk, they always look um, like the best thing ever. So somehow, I don't know how I managed to do it, considering that every time I saw her, she just saw me carrying on like an absolute pork chop. I managed to get her number, and we went out on a date. So I picked her up for a date one time. Uh, she wore high heels, like almost a ball gown. Like she was dressed up to the nines, um, looking to be wined and dined by a, a youthful aristocrat. And I took a 10-pin bowling, so... <laughs> Um, safe to say that it didn't go particularly well um, and there was no second date things sort of simmered down from there and then a couple of months later um, we're at another uh, venue in the Coolangatta area and uh, she happened to be there and obviously with things not going too well at the time I thought I probably shouldn't go over there and introduce myself again because she's probably not too keen on seeing me but a few drinks later and a couple of martinis with a twist of redemptions felt me going you know what <laughs> I might go over and have a chat. So I go over there, start talking to her. Turns out she's designated driver. So I don't think in my entire life to that point I'd been managed to woo a sober human being. So things were looking pretty <laughs> grim as it was. But it seems though she was feeling somewhat the, the redemption story as well. So we ended up chatting for a while. She started drinking as well. And yeah, the, the conversation and banter was flowing and we seemed to be genuinely hitting it off. So she goes, well, how about we get out of here? We can go to, oh, we ended up going to her bar for a little bit as well, um, but she was pretty quick to get out of there once she realised that everyone there knew that I was a bit of a dickhead. So we got out of there. Um, she's still driving um, by this stage. 
um, which is clearly putting my life in complete jeopardy. But unfortunately, this would be the least dangerous situation she'd put me in (laughs) that night. So at the end of the night, as everyone does, they want to go and get some food. So we went to, um, there was a 7-Eleven on the Coolangatta Strip that we used to go to, and we just went to get a, a pie from there to really cap off a wonderful evening. Uh, it's the middle of summer on the Gold Coast. Obviously, it's probably still about 30 degrees at night time. The windows are down. We pull up. She's drunk. I'm drunk. And there's a bunch of probably about six blokes walking past the car. And without uh, putting the cooling out of area in it too much, there's uh, the general population there is um, not exactly high end, I wouldn't say. Um, so there's a lot of a rough customers getting about and these six young gentlemen appeared to fall into that category. So there's six of them minding their own business. they got nothing to do with us. They're walking past. And then um, the girl just displays all of her charm and etiquette and goes, what the fuck are you looking at, cunt? To just... <laughs> one, none, none of them were even looking in our direction at all, but they turn around. They see that she's called out. They walk around. They see that there's a girl there and a bloke there, so they walk around, understandably, to the boys' side of the car and me being the obvious coward that I am, start <laughs> profusely apologising on behalf of her and, you know, rather than letting bygones be bygones, the fella decides to just punch me square in the face. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, I'm not much of a, I'm more of a lover than a fighter. I'm not a, a super aggressive um, bloke, unless it's backyard cricket, obviously. Oh, I do tail. Um, so I continue to just profusely apologise on behalf of the woman, um, saying, oh, you know, she's just drunk, she don't, didn't mean it. Um, but once again, rather than hearing out my reasoned apologies, he decided to just punch me in the face again. He then walks off, uh, obviously sick of hearing my apologies with his mates. And, you know, I was thinking, is this the time for me to, to be chivalrous, to get out of the car and avenge my honour, try and impress this woman? Um, as it turned out, it wasn't. But it was that moment for someone else. The young lady barrels out of the car like a bat out of hell and chases after them, starts screaming in their faces and pushing them. I thought, oh, I've done everything I can to try and avoid conflict here. So I've had to get out of the car and physically restrain a woman who was, in <laughs> essence, trying to avenge my own. It was a, dis- a vicious Disney cycle where I had become a damsel in distress who in turn was having to rescue a damsel in in distress as well. So eventually I'm able to pry her away and get her back in the car. Um, We get our horrible Bain-Marie heated pastries, room temperature pies, biting into it and just knowing that this is it for us. This is as far as we're going to go, I think. (laughs) This uh, disgusting... It's going to go one of two ways, that uh, that line in the sand and off that moment. You're either going to fall madly in love, I imagine, pretty quickly part ways. Yeah, it fizzled out pretty quickly from there. So I often wondered, I used to see her every now and then when she was behind the bar, I often wondered what would happen if I had stood up that night and, you know, been a real man's man and we've been really chivalrous, you know, would I have been her housebound concubine that would, you know, look after the home while she went out and took names in busted frames? Or, um, But I, the little silver lining was that, you know, I probably would have just ended up being uh, one of the uh, voiceless victims of domestic violence violence for males. So I thought probably better off that I didn't end up winding up with her. So um, unfortunate, but that's the way things go sometimes. You tend to find yourself in some tricky situations, which uh, is probably unfortunate for you, but good for us to, to be on the, on the tail end of <laughs> laughing at it's, your misfortune. And To be honest, I, I did see the humour in it at the time as well. 
earlier that day, actually, we'd been talking about how um, I'd never actually been in a fight. So it was almost... Um, <laughs> I can just imagine you getting getting whacked thinking, oh, yes, the boys are going to love yeah. this. So to be honest, I was pretty wrapped <laughs> in the again. whole thing. So yeah, <laughs> it worked out pretty well for me. So it is one of the stories that um, does feature in the book with obviously a little bit more detail and uh, really builds the narrative a little bit more than I was able to just now. But um, yeah, pretty funny story from... Uh, the archives. Well, a couple more for you, just to uh, that I'm curious about. So, storytelling clearly something that you enjoy doing, uh, and we all was, we enjoy listening to to some extent. Comedians. So, do you do you have some favourites? Who do you who do you listen to at the moment? Who's do you take note of the way they communicate things, or do you just yeah? What are your thoughts around that? Because I've been diving into so many fucking Netflix specials lately, and just yeah. time laughing at people's stories. Yeah, who who do you like? Uh, so Louis C.K. is a big one. Stand-up comedy for me is a funny one. I love stand-up comedy, but there's the major, almost 90% of stand-up comedy I just don't enjoy. I just don't think it's very creative or very good. But yeah, Louis C.K. is one that really stands out. I like Andrew Schultz as well. But my favourite at the moment is probably a guy called Dion Cole. I know... Um, oh, he's the best. I, I think I got you onto him. His half-hour special... You did. Special, he's a fucking legend. His half-hour special on Netflix, The Comedians, is the best set of stand-up comedy that I've ever seen. It just hits me like right in the soul. So they're three guys that really stand out at the moment. What about dinner table uh, guests? So I don't know if... I, so I, I always have this conversation with people, not just on the show, but just off air. And sometimes it's funny and entertaining. Sometimes it's like a really philosophical realm we get into. But the whole like, who would you invite to your perfect dinner table, dead or alive? And you could pick, say, five guests from history or real time. Do you have a few that you'd go to? Yeah, I do. I don't know whether that'd be it'd be much of a dinner table chat, to be honest. I think. Well, there's no like prerequisite to like how it should take place. Yeah, yeah. Like, of course. You could have. Yeah. I reckon maybe. I reckon maybe Charles Darwin would feature. I do love science, and yeah, I'd love to love to have a chat to him about his work in the field. I think Roger Federer, sport, another love of mine. Just an absolute champion. And maybe Louis C.K., just probably my favourite comedian. And obviously the three big things, three big loves of mine, science, yeah, sport, right. and comedy. So yeah. Check all the boxes. What about Sam Harris? Are you into him? I think he, he's, he's actually, to be honest, if I was to... Do you like him? I love Sam Harris, yeah. He'd probably think, oh, yeah. to be honest. Um, yeah. I tried to throw Darwin in there just to spice things up a little bit and make it seem like I was maybe a little bit more interesting and... Well-rounded than perhaps I have. But, yeah, Sam Harris for sure. I love Sam Harris. That's certainly a good dinner party to be a part of. What about yourself? Have you... Um, it sort of changes. Like, some of them are pretty obvious for the people that know me. Drake, for me, from the pop Dog space. <laughs> like, I'm a fucking fan. Like, you just I'm have like, three Drakes. <laughs> I just... Yeah, I'd, yeah. Drake is, probably would. Like, Drake is Sean Twain. Drake is uh, <laughs> Francis Drake. If I had five people to have, I'd have Drake, Dougal McDougal, Sean Twain, Fishy Fish Cake and Moby. Well, the good news is that you don't need... <laughs> and maybe Michael Michaels is like a little ruffie just so we can all laugh at him and throw our food at him. Well, minus Michael Michaels, the good news is, is that you wouldn't actually need any other physical embodiments for you to actually have that. This is true. <laughs> you can just do that on any given night when you're home alone, so... This is true. I feel like someone like, you know, someone from the past would be cool, like a Hitler. Really? You know. <laughs> just to kind of <laughs> settle down. <laughs> just to get an insight as to what goes, like, 
the the mind of someone like that and the um have such a big impact on history and sort of pick the brain of how it all came about. I think it'd be interesting at the very least. Yeah. Uh, someone like um, I'd love to have Muhammad Ali. I'd love to. Be, I mean, there's all kinds of people. I'd have a pretty long. I'd have a fucking waiting list of people coming in. Sure. Uh, all right. What about? I want to talk about rap briefly before we sort of wrap things up because yeah. it's I fucking love it. Everyone knows it, and so <laughs> do you. And but we sort of we vary a little bit there. But I can just riff on that for fucking hours. But before I do, uh, we don't usually have these sort of conversations. But I just I'm, I ask most people I have on the show. So let's just let's just see where this goes. So pretty easy going guy. You, you know your books obviously attest to that. Some of the stories we've spoken about already pretty clearly like making fun of yourself and not taking life too seriously. Are there things that you try like that you practice being grateful for or? Or if not, like if you have to reflect on it now, like what makes what makes you happy? Yeah, for sure. I think a big focus of mine is the little things um, and just being grateful for really simple things that you don't really need um, a lot of things to necessarily be going your way to be to have in your life. To be honest, so obviously people's a huge one. So the relationships that you have um, with people, being really grateful to have them in your life, and um, a big thing that I try to really be aware of is just whether it's the sacrifices that other people make or um you know when they give you the time of day about something that they're not maybe as interested as you are whether it's something for example something that i'm working on and that i'm really excited about people you know really being genuinely excited about that for you as well is something i try to be really aware of um just little things as well so things in nature as well yeah that's huge it's like i feel like and it sort of digress too much. Like I know when I was, uh, as everyone does to some extent, like I was going for a rough time, and some of those little, those it's very clear that you do enjoy and appreciate those little things. It's yeah. something that I've always struggled with, and it's such like I mean, the conversation can go into like a sort of a spiritual woo woo realm, but just on a real basic level, it's so fucking important and it's so easy. And it's, yeah, for yeah, sure. I think I, I get I get lost in that. So to your credit, uh, in all seriousness, I think that was something that I picked up, obviously from a lot of other people as well, but saying that you um, were pretty clear on over the last few years that we've, you know, spoken about conversations around this space anyway. So, yeah. And I think, I mean, it is something that, you know, is largely easier said than done as well. I think, you know, it's really easy to have, to think a little bit too far ahead and really get caught up with sort of the more macro uh, level of um, things that are going on in your life. But I think just lowering your eyes and um, it may even be really simple things like, Maybe you can really looking forward to a particular movie that's coming out, or um, maybe um, like for you, it could be something Drake releases a new song, or it might even be just hearing yeah. someone talk about a particular topic that you're really interested in. It might be learning a skill that you're really excited about. There's lots of little things that you can still have in your life, even if everything else is going a little bit pear shaped. Yeah, and I, I think as well, realizing that um, it's, I think it's quite easy for when something, particularly if it's something that's really important and big in your life isn't going as well as you particularly um, as you might want it to, to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit and just oh, yeah. assume or think that, you know, everything is going to shit it's basically. like catastrophizing a little bit. Yeah, I think being able to take a step back and actually viewing it you know, from how someone else might view it because we're always stuck in with just only our perception of things and being able to find a way to – try and step outside of yourself and seeing maybe a clearer, because sometimes we're just a little bit too close to whatever's going on in our lives that we can't really grasp the the bigger picture. And I think, yeah, finding ways of yeah, being able to step outside of what's going on in your life and maybe taking a different perspective of it and just finding things that 
help you get perspective in your life as well, whatever that might be. So it might be something along the lines of, you know, reflecting on your place in the universe and how, you know, you're really just such a, such a small thing into this vast universe that we live in. It might be something else. It might be something that's really um, specific to whatever's going on in your life. But I think being aware of what those things are that help you keep your perspective and then being able to implement them when things aren't going so good. Yeah, dude, that, that's huge. Um, it's funny, like you mentioned there that, you know, where it's a Drake song for me personally and everyone's got their thing, but like my whole thing of late anyway, and look, I've been lying to myself, I've always felt this way. It's like it's, I have fallen victim to kind of losing perspective. And my whole thing is like what the whole goal of life is to feel good, right? It's to, to feel happy and connected in some way. And, you know, for me, chasing down goals and being ambitious, I feel like I'm wired that way to an extent. I know a lot of people are. And that's fine, but at the end of the day, that's just a, that's not the goal. Like that's just a strategy to create for me, create a sense of drive and all that stuff. But when it's at the cost of actually, you know, feeling good and appreciating the little things in life, that's when it gets problematic. And I, I find once you sort of take a step back and go, like you kind of you summarize quite quite nicely, there is okay. Let's just get the right perspective here. Like, what are the little things I can appreciate? And something like looking forward to a music release for me. It's funny how if I actually reflect on it now and in hindsight, it's like, fuck, like the, the neurochemistry that, that I'm experiencing in that moment, not always, but at times, is so like ecstatic for such a small thing, like the sun shining and I'm listening to like the new album, that, the new hip hop album that's just dropped, vis-a-vis, like, this, you know, chasing out a big project or a goal, so to speak, like it's, it's, you get the same, if not more kind of, you know, I don't have to sort of geek out too much, but kind of oxytocin, serotonin production, like the more of that kind of calm and joyful state from the smaller things. And yeah, I know so many people that just lose perspective. Yeah, and I think the reality is that everyone would have those things in their life where they do have those little things that provide them quite a lot of joy, probably more joy than they realise. But I think the challenging thing is um, reflecting on them in the moments where things aren't going particularly well and making sure that you do, you know, be aware and give credence to those things that you can actually still be really grateful for. I love it. Hip-hop is one of those. Um, I touched on it before, but let's talk, let's unpack this a little bit, uh, if you're happy to. So I fucking love it. It's my world has been since as long as I can remember. And then I don't recall you being massive into the hip-hop community as a kid, but then as we sort of, you know, almost when we connected again up in the Gold Coast and, I don't know, all of a sudden you were just into your um into your rap and battle rap in particular. So that's where we vary a little bit. I love my pop culture and everything from fucking old school classics to new school, um, Atlanta sort of um trap music. I like it all. Yeah. What are your what are your thoughts around that space and who are you into? So as far as like uh, as far as hip hop goes, like I am not a huge fan of like a lot of um current hip hop. Yeah. Um and like even a couple uh, like a lot of current um like really successful and really popular and really well-respected rap art as well. Even someone like Kendrick Lamar is someone who's like really critically acclaimed, really popular as well. Yeah. It's just not really um, my type of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm probably more like an old school sort of, I, I prefer like the old school hip hop music a little bit more, I think, um, where it's yeah. more that almost natural sounding flow. Um, like yeah. you get with like a Jay-Z, even like older Kanye. Yeah. But yeah, like you mentioned, battle rap for me is like the main space in which. Um, so how'd you get into battle rap? Because like <laughs> I, I fucking get it, yeah, you, yeah. but you got me into it. Yeah. Like I was like, what? The, who are these motherfuckers? Like, was... and lyrically, on the spot, like I mean, obviously, you know, part of it's part of it's scripted, but then there's also like rhetorical stuff and 
Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's impressive and it's cool, but how do you go down that rabbit hole in the first place? So, interesting story, actually. So I was in Budapest. Um, and and you are in a rap battle? Please tell me that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I was in a rap battle. Um, it was telecast on live television. No, it was, <laughs> it was um, a, I think, open mic night was the night that it was. And so basically it was just a, a night for, it was a, through a party hostel. So um, it wasn't like it was for actual musicians or anything. It was just for people, backpackers who were having a bit of fun, get up, put on a bit of a show. And there was a guy there who could play um, Lose Yourself by Eminem on the bass guitar, but he could play the, the music for it. And somehow he, we ended up agreeing that like he would play the, <laughs> the bass part of it and I would rap lose yourself <laughs> everyone thinks like yeah i know all the the words to lose yourself it should be easy enough but when you're not rapping along to the actual music and you're yeah. the person performing it's actually much harder than i think i got through the first bit that everyone knows mum spaghetti vomit on the shirt already and whatnot um but I think by the time the second verse came around and as you know like mouth elasticity is not my big guy i'm a bit of a mumbler when i speak so I don't quite have the apparatus necessary to keep up with uh, one of the, the fastest rappers in history with Eminem. So halfway through the song, it's just gone to shit basically, completely pear-shaped, and I've just stopped singing that one, and I've resorted to the old Eminem from the 8 Mile movie where everybody from the 313, put your motherfucking hands up and follow me. And I just did that for the remaining minute that we we're on stage, basically, <laughs> because I just had. Were you waving your hands? As Absolutely. Like, the... yeah. yeah. Were people following? They were because it was just a bunch of backpackers, and <laughs> I, I literally could have done it. I could have probably recited Mayan camp or something and got a bit of a cheer <laughs> that night. But um, so yeah, anyway, like, and I did that, and we were having a bit of a laugh about it, and then a couple of days later. I was with a bloke who I'd met in Budapest. We'd travelled somewhere else and we'd met this other girl. I think we were in Croatia. And we might have been telling her the story or whatever. And then somehow, basically, the bloke brought up a rap battle from both 360 and Cursor. I don't know whether you've seen it. I don't know how. It's a couple of years old. I have. I, I have. Um, and I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. But then the girl goes, oh, like, I've seen this really cool rap battle. And she showed me. It was a compliment battle. I had... Um, Pat's Day and Rain, the compliment battle that I've shown to you. Yeah. Um, and it was just a completely, it just blew me away, like the creativity with what they were doing. It was really funny as well. Obviously, someone who loves humour um, mm. really captured me. And so I watched that. And then probably a couple of weeks later, I didn't think about that again, but then a couple of weeks later, I was somewhere else. I was in, this was after I'd split my chin in Spain. I had to have a couple of quiet days. And um, I was just spent a day on my phone and I, watched that rap battle again and then I just went down the, the rap battle rabbit hole and I've been hooked ever since basically. Yeah, it's good stuff. Is it the is it the like is it the lyrical sort of cleverness? That is the, yeah, that is a big part of it. So yeah. Um I get like a huge amount of inspiration writing wise from what yeah, they, even yeah, though it's yeah. completely different or largely different. There are some elements of what they do that um benefits yeah. my writing directly as well. But I love the double double and triple entendres. Like that's yeah. my favorite thing in in music. Is like particularly in rap battles. That's where it gets showcased a lot. Yeah, like, I think um like largely the consensus is that like battle rap is like the forefront of lyrical rap. 
just because what what you can do, like you can probably do more in battle rap rather than with making music. You've got to yeah, making you sort of got your sixteen bars, generally speaking, to like to hit. You've got to sort of land on the beat. You you can't sort of squeeze too many words in. Like you got to you generally have to sort of follow the theme or context of a of a song as opposed to just letting you know just letting your your mind and mouth just sort of flourish and and, and i think with that comes with so much more creativity and, and random fun shit which is yeah. like makes you go whoa yeah so it's been it's had a huge like impact on me and i i've kept up to date with it ever since so, so, so when are you touring um <laughs> funny you mentioned pretty much with the book launch with the book <laughs> i might have to uh maybe i'll battle you at some stage for the brownlow <laughs> that's not a bad idea well I was going to put you on the spot and get you to spit a few bars but then I figured you'd probably put me on the spot and I tried to freestyle this morning just randomly and I basically came up with not a whole lot I think there was something about I'm going to go far I can see my car yeah. <laughs> some... and uh, it just fizzled out sounds uh, pretty similar to what I was doing on stage in Budapest to be honest <laughs> well maybe next time when the, when the book's ready to launch and you're back on the show we'll um if you um, we'll just go fuck. We'll just go fire. If you get a couple of beers into me, you're usually a pretty good chance of uh, hearing a couple of bars come your way, as uh, quite a few of my friends could vouch. <laughs> Noted. So then, just to wrap up, first, actually, before we do, I want to know when we can expect the book. I know there's no probably exact date to share, but before then, just on your creative process. So, could you give us a little bit of insight as to how that's like how that works? Do you write every day? Do you write when you feel like it? And and the point I want to kind of stress almost or highlight is i feel like like what you've been able to do and i'm not pissing your pocket here you put a book together and yes it's funny and silly and all this stuff but it's a lot of words and it is coherent and it's great and it's entertaining you know it's no small feat and i, I think well i know i do and i know a lot of people listening might um, get stuck or <sighs> trying to put something together it doesn't have to be a book or any sort of pursuit whether it's something like for work or outside of work um, either they get so overwhelmed they just don't start or they get started and then they just give up because it's too overwhelming and they kind of under underestimate what they can do in a long time and overestimate what they can do in a short time. But the vis-a-vis, being able to chip away at something and, 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 and complete a project is essentially what I'm trying to highlight here. It is it is no small feat. So how'd you do it? Yeah, so I think one of the key factors is the fact that i was writing something that i actually wanted to write so it's obviously much harder to write things um when you're not inspired you're not interested um the fact that i was inspired i was interested um and it was to be one of my probably my favorite thing to do as a human being is to come up with funny things and think of funny things to say or write so it was something that i actually really enjoyed for the most part uh really enjoyed because it gave me an opportunity to really do that so i don't write every day um just with everything if i've got if i've got time to be writing every day if i'm on holidays or whatever then i will but just with work and other commitments and stuff it it just doesn't eventuate that way so sometimes you might get a period where i'm writing regularly you know every day for an extended period of time and then sometimes it might just be once a week there's even been times where extended periods where i just haven't had the chance to to really do a lot of writing as far as in terms of, I mean, obviously there's been plenty of times where it's been really challenging as well. So do you have writer's block? Is that a thing? Uh, yeah, for sure. Definitely not being unable to write anything at all, but being able to write something good for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you generally just brain dump ideas and then sort of tidy it up afterwards? Is that sort of, is that the process? So, yeah, so I, there's a couple of different things. There. So I might come up with an idea and it might not be an appropriate time for me to 
do some writing. So I might just put some ideas down in my phone or whatever. It might be mm. a sentence. It might be you know a paragraph, or it might just be like two words or something that triggers like an idea that I want to build around. As for on those occasions where like I've set aside time to write and I'm sitting there and I can't really come up with anything good, I just write something anyway. And then maybe something comes out or maybe something won't come out. And I've just got to, as frustrating as it is, I've just got to accept that. And then, um, but more often than not, there's something that can be salvaged from it. Or at least if I've done that and then maybe that night in bed or something, I might get the idea that is actually what I want to run with. So Very good. Very good. But yeah, I don't, I, well, mate, let's leave. Here you go. Let's I was just going to say, in terms of the process, like it's one of those things, and I'm sure, you know, anyone who's done things that they've, you know, projects that they're really passionate about, where when you look back on it, you really only just remember, like I don't reflect on writing the book and think, oh, that was actually a really challenging thing. Like I reflect on it and just think that it was a really enjoyable thing. There's a, a scene from Everybody Loves Raymond, actually, where Ray's given a speech at his brother's Robert's wedding. Oh, yeah. And he's, talk, he's talking about life in general and he's, he mentions how you don't remember the bad times, you really just remember the good times. When you look back and reflect, it's, um, yeah, the good moments, the good memories that stand out. And I think writing this book is similar with me in that there was plenty of times where it was really difficult and I was, you know, really frustrated and not particularly enjoying it. But reflecting back on it, it's largely, um, yeah, largely pos- positive. It is a good piece of work. Um, I can't wait for it to... To come out, do you have an idea of when to expect it? Is it going to be a? Is it going to be hard copy? Is it going to be an ebook? Uh, at this stage, I don't know. I don't have a yeah. date exactly. Um, yeah. it, it'll depend on whether I go publish through um, a publishing house or whether I self-publish. It'll depend on what unfolds in regards to that. Um, either way, it, it will be available as a, a physical book, and I haven't exactly worked out the the mechanics of that. At the moment, um, in terms of a date as well, yeah, I'm just going through the process at the moment of reaching out to literary agents, um, which can be a, a little bit of a, a lengthy process. So it's hard to give an exact idea yep. around when. The good news is that from my perspective, I've written, I'm not looking to make any changes that aren't being recommended by someone else who's going to be involved in the book so to speak so, so you're pretty happy with the product at this stage yeah yeah so um it's a a finished uh, product in that sense or well, when it when it does come we'll get you back on the show and we'll uh we'll unpack it a bit more yeah it sounds good i look forward to it mate this is good fun hopefully you enjoyed yourself yeah it's first uh first king in the media yeah. <laughs> i enjoyed it easy test run yeah. <laughs> not, not all of them are going to be your brother talking smack for half the show uh, i'm sure most of them will probably end up uh involving me talking about the brown low and trying to get to the bottom of the mystery <laughs> i'm sure we'll, we'll never let it go maybe that battle will have to happen sounds good i'd back myself in on that one too so <laughs> we should broadcast it live good publicity for the book and, and the podcast yeah yeah we'll work through the details on that one okay we'll get my people to reach out your people all right sounds good right well, mate, I usually tell people that I would, uh, you know, look forward to connecting with them sometime in the future, and and hopefully we can make you know more conversations happen and and reach out and, and spend time together in in the future. But I think for us, mate, I think it's as simple as I'll see it, mum and dad's when COVID's lifted, oh. when uh, the lockdown's lifted. So. All right, sounds good, mate. I'll see you then. Well done on all the uh, the work you're doing with your podcast too. It's been great, mate. Keep it up. Thanks, mate. Good on you. All right.